Let's read the opening passage. We're going to go back. We, we finished with verse 22 last week, but we're going to touch on it just a little bit more this morning. So we'll look at verses 22 through 25 of 1 John chapter 2. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's another one of those words that people think you're being hateful if you use that word, but God doesn't pull any punches, does he? He tells it like it is. I mentioned last week that the word stupid's in the Bible. Again, I forgot to print it out, but there's a whole bunch of verses where you'll find the word stupid. And I mean, hey, one of the greatest intellects of all time, Forrest Gump, said stupid is as stupid does. So it's funny because I, I called my wife back in South Carolina this past week. I don't even know how it came up, but she was telling me how our grandson ever said, oh, I'm not allowed to say that word, stupid. I think, well, I'm glad he didn't hear my message last Sunday then. <laughs> so anyway, she, and he's asking her, what does stoop mean? What does stoop mean? So I don't know where he got that from, but anyway, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us. This is really good, isn't it? Eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we have to spend in your word this morning. As always, we are grateful and we pray that you would just uh, anoint and inspire this teaching, that you'd speak to our hearts, Father, that you'd cause your word to come alive in our hearts and in our minds this morning. Quicken unto us the truth that you have for us today and help us to apply it deep within our hearts and minds. It would impact the way we think, the way we live, the way we speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to just go back and touch a little bit on this verse 22. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Let's go back even further to this point again about who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. I think we covered this last week. All the things that that title means, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And so anyone who denies that he's all that he says he is, and he proved it, as Ed already mentioned, by rising from the dead, that person is a liar. See, another, that would sound harsh, maybe, you know, hateful. And we have today, everybody's being labeled this kind of phobe and that kind of phobe, homophobe, uh, xenophobe, which means, you know, you're racist, basically. Uh, all the different phobes. But the interesting thing, again, it's, misapplication of terminology, which is so common today, a phobia is a fear of something. If you have arachnophobia, you're afraid of spiders, which means you're afraid they're going to bite you, right? You know, if you have claustrophobia, you, you freak out when you're in a tight space. But just because we take a stand based upon the truth of God's word, that according to God's word, homosexuality is wrong, that doesn't make you a phobe. It's not a phobia. It's simply standing for the truth. 
And but people will label you with these name tags. You know, xenophobe, homophobe, Islamophobe. If you're an Islamophobe, that means you're afraid of Muslims. No, we're not afraid of them. In fact, we know that God loves them, right? Jesus died on the cross for them too. But we're not afraid of them. We simply recognize that there are problems with their doctrine, their theology, their basic foundational belief system runs contrary to the truth of God's word. So don't let people get away with that. Calling you a homophobe or an Islamophobe or whatever kind of phobe it might be, that's a total misapplication of terminology. A phobia is a fear. The Bible tells me that His perfect love casts out all fear. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Amen? Amen. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So not only does that Antichrist spirit... Now, we, we've made this distinction already. We notice in John chapter 2, he speaks that Antichrist, small a, had already come in his day, in the very first century. That spirit of Antichrist being against Christ, against the Messiah, that spirit was already present from the very earliest days of the church. That was the spirit that crucified Christ. The spirit of Antichrist was present within the leadership of Israel, within the Sanhedrin, within the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That spirit of Antichrist was already there. But then he makes a distinction of the large A, big A, the Antichrist. Here he's speaking in a more general sense of anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, little a. But not only does the Antichrist spirit deny Jesus for all that he is, notice, it also denies the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son because the Father is the one who sent his Son as the Christ, as the Messiah, so if you deny Jesus, you're denying the Father as well. Interesting, this is something that I forgot to read to you last week. Pope and Grand Imam, that's a big wig in the Muslim religion, right? In Islam. Pope and Grand Imam, this was just a week ago, signed historic pledge of fraternity in the United Arab Emirates. The Pope and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar have signed a historic declaration of fraternity calling for peace between nations, religions, and races in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faiths. So, the message that they're trying to put out there, and by the way, the Pope is the leader of what some might call the largest Christian religion, denomination on the face of the planet. I know there's some questionable doctrines within the Catholic Church, but they do come under the category of Christian. And here the Pope is signing this declaration of fraternity uh, with, and calling for unity and harmony between all nations, religions, and races. And what they're basically saying is Yahweh, Allah, Buddha, Krishna, they're all really just one and the same. We're seeing the early stages of the formation of the one world religion, folks. And as we've seen, we've studied this before. I think we may have even talked about it last week in the book of Revelation. 
chapter 13, when it talks about they're going to worship the beast, the Antichrist, personally indwelt by Satan, and that's been Satan's goal from the beginning of time, would be to usurp that worship that belongs only to the God of all creation. This is the spirit of Antichrist that steals that worship that belongs only to God. We see it happening before our very eyes. Now, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The supreme liar is the one who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. This was Gnosticism and a particular branch of Gnosticism that they deny that he is both God and man, that he had a physical body of flesh and blood. So this separation of the human and the divine was an early docetic heresy, docetism, from the Greek dokeo. It means to seem. And what they, they taught, and assuming that there are some descendants of them still floating around, and I suspect there are, they, they taught the belief that Jesus' physical body was an illusion. He was a phantom, if you will, as was his crucifixion, also an illusion. That is, Jesus only seemed to have a physical body and to physically die. But in reality, he was incorporeal, a pure spirit, and hence could not physically die. The only problem with that is, if he didn't literally physically die on the cross for our sins and have his blood flow out of his body on Mount Calvary, there's no salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, it says there, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We know there are many different angles on this, but again, the point is, the liar is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, and that incorporates everything that he is, everything that he claims to be, everything that he has proven that he is, everything that God's word tells us he is. There was a guy named Serenthus who taught around A.D. 100, and he believed that the Christ spirit came on Jesus, but was not identical to him. Have you ever heard that? We hear some of these New Age people talk about the Christ consciousness. It's very similar. There's nothing new under the sun. These same old doctrines of demons, if you will, have been around forever. So he says the Christ spirit came on Jesus, but was not identical to him. The late 2nd century Christian writer Irenaeus also attributed this view to many later Gnostics. So this is Gnosticism that John is addressing here, and it was already coming forth within the first century church, and that's why he was saying, you know, Antichrists, many Antichrists have come already. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And so you have a lot of people who will say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I believe there's some kind of a cosmic consciousness out there, some kind of a, uh, you know, divine power, higher power, but this whole Jesus stuff, I just can't buy into it. You ever heard anybody say something like that? Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. What does this actually mean? Well, a number of things that people deny that would prevent them from coming into a personal relationship with the Father. They deny that Jesus was and is a true historical figure. Some people try to say Jesus never really existed. I'm reminded of the word stupid again. Because whether you believe he's the son of God or not, he, he is a true historical figure. He really did exist 2,000 years ago in Israel. 
but some people deny that. Just like we have Holocaust deniers. Are you familiar with those? In spite of all the massive amount of evidence, and I've been to the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in Jerusalem. In fact, I went there, as you probably remember, a couple years ago. Uh, was the, they gave sponsorships to pastors and leaders to go and attend this conference or seminar. It was about a 10-day training on the Holocaust because they want leaders within the Christian church. This, this is a Jewish center, the, uh, the Holocaust Museum and the Educational Center, but they have a, a wing uh, a Christian wing within this Holocaust Center led by a Christian lady from Norway and their whole goal is to reach out to Christians and because so many people are so ignorant about what went on during the Holocaust of World War II. So I learned a lot. It was very intense. And yet, in spite of all the massive amount of evidence and that museum is filled with tons of photographs and artifacts and different things related to the Holocaust, you have people, and particularly within the Muslim world, but also there are others. If I'm not mistaken, the British guy, is it Jeremy Corbyn? I can't remember. There's a guy in England who wants to run for prime minister, and he is anti-Semitic, and I believe he's a Holocaust denier. So for some people, the truth doesn't, just doesn't even matter, Right? They deny that Jesus was and is a true historical figure. They deny that he came in the flesh, as we talked about a moment ago with docetism. They deny the virgin birth. That's impossible, couldn't happen. And yet, clearly, with God, all things are possible. God created everything out of nothing. If he can do that, I think he can impregnate the Virgin Mary. What do you think? Supernaturally. They deny that he was and is fully human and fully God. Either denying his deity. In fact, that's one of the trademarks of most cult groups. You'll find they deny the Trinity because to acknowledge the Trinity would be to acknowledge that Jesus is co-creator and he is God. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Christ. There are a number of groups that deny. Even, even within the Christian group uh, world, there are some sects that deny the deity of Christ or the Trinity and so forth. And again, he clearly makes the claim that he is God in the scriptures. The scriptures declare him to be God. And in reality, the only one who could ever possibly make a sacrifice for our sins would be God because he alone is perfect. But in order to become that sacrifice, he had to take on human form. They denied that he rose from the dead. We're coming up to, on the celebration of the resurrection. And yet again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if he isn't risen, then we're worse off than everybody. The resurrection's the whole ball game. The resurrection seals the deal. When Christ died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. When he rose from the dead, he conquered death and sealed the deal in regard, with regards to the promise that we too would live forever. And then finally, and there's probably more things, but I've come up with at least five here, they deny that he's coming again. And we've talked a lot about that lately. And that's where we really see within, even within the, um, the universal body of Christ or the, um, under the umbrella of the Christian church that there are many who 
really downplay or even mock, as we've seen in Second Peter, the mockers, the scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? They deny that he's coming again, or if he is, it's not going to be for thousands of years. I highly doubt that. Because we read last week where Jesus said in Matthew 24, unless the days be shortened, even the elect would not be saved. How many of you remember that? So that tells us if God doesn't intervene, the human race is going to destroy itself. Do you see how we have that potential? Oh, yeah. So we're basically talking about denying any and all that he claims to be and all that the Bible says he is. And we're told that the person who denies that does not have the Father either. So to deny the Son, that makes it impossible to become a part of God's family and have God as your Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So as his role, coming to earth, becoming a man, the incarnation in his humanity, and his sacrifice on the cross, he became the mediator. He bridged the gap between God the Father and the human race. One mediator, not many. One mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, 33, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my fathers in heaven. So, all those who say, well, you know what? I've been a pretty good person. I'm sure that I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. God's going to let me in. I, you know, I've got a good resume here. But when we stand before God, which the Bible clearly says that we will, he's going to be looking to Jesus to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down, you see? The father's going to say, hey, do you know this guy? Ooh. What you don't want to hear is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Jesus has the final say. And that's going to be a problem for a lot of people who have denied him and rejected him, you see? He loves you. He proved it. He died on the cross for your sins. His desire would be to say yes to everyone. Thumbs up. Come on in. But if you've denied him in this life, that ain't going to happen. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. But then we go on. This is the positive side of the coin. John says, he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So again, as I just stated, Jesus holds the key to the restoration of our relationship with our Heavenly Father who created us in His image in order that we might have a love relationship with Him. And here's the other side of that other coin from Matthew 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. So there's a direct connection between our earthly confession or profession of faith and our acknowledgement in heaven. And the idea being that if we're too embarrassed or too ashamed to admit in front of other people that we believe in Jesus, we probably are not in possession of a saving faith. Do you get that? I've heard other people use the term. When I started using it, I'd not heard it anywhere else, but I don't know. Some, when you've been doing what I've been doing as long as I have, it's hard to remember who said what, where it came from. 
but this idea of a saving faith. A faith that actually results in conversion, transformation, being born again by the Spirit of God. And if we possess a saving faith, which by the way, God gives to us. But how many of us here today know and understand that someone can give you a gift, but if you don't use it, it's worthless. Is that correct? How many of us have done that? Somebody gives you, I, I can think of one at home right now that I've got. I put it in the drawer and I haven't used it. It's a little piece of technological equipment given to me as a gift by someone. And I just couldn't get motivated to mess with it to make it work. But when it comes to salvation, you definitely need to get motivated to make that work. Right? Whoever confesses me before men. And by the way, since we're on this subject, I'll mention this. In times past, I've encouraged people. We always have a prayer time at the end of the service where we invite people to come if they would like prayer for any reason, whether it's to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, whether it's to recommit your life to Him, whether you need prayer for physical healing, guidance, direction, encouragement. God is our source for everything that we need in this life. But I also, at certain times, have encouraged people, maybe you consider yourself a believer, maybe you really have confessed your sins before God, you've invited Christ to come and live inside of you, to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, but maybe you've never done that publicly. If you go back and you look at the beginning of the Gospels, when Jesus went out and began to call his disciples. He was walking along the seashore, along the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Peter and Andrew were fishermen, James and John. They both had their family fishing businesses. And he called them. He was walking along. He didn't even stop. He looked over and he called them to come and follow him. And the Bible tells us, book, Gospel of Mark, immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. He called them publicly. And they responded immediately. If you've never, ever made a public profession of faith, then one way you could do that would be at the end of the service when we have the prayer time, if you would simply come up and uh, pray with one of the folks that will be up here waiting for you and, and make a public statement about your faith. I think it's vitally important. Vitally important to do that. Or go up to someone after church and say, I just want to say in front of you, in front of God, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's really important to do that. I believe that. And once you've done that, you're not going to come under that category of denying him before men, being ashamed or being afraid to admit that you are a believer. Because let me tell you something. Of course, the world and the devil, they want us to believe that anybody who's a Christian is a stupid idiot. Well, there's that word again. You know, you're brainwashed, you have a you know, skull full of mush, you know. But you know, some of the most intelligent men and women in history, scientists, philosophers, people from every realm of society have been strong believers. Have you ever heard of Sir Isaac Newton? He's a strong believer. Amazing scientist, but also an amazing theologian. And I've read a number of articles over the last several years where even Albert Einstein 
acknowledged a belief in God. He was Jewish. And he even spoke positively about Jesus Christ. Now, I can't say that Einstein was born again believer, but you think someone like Einstein wouldn't be stupid enough to believe in God, right? And yet he did. He was smart enough to know. He acknowledged this is evidence, this whole world around us, this whole universe is evidence of intelligent design. And yet, our public educational system continues to brainwash young people into believing that evolution's a fact, intelligent design is a fairy tale. You see the scam going on here? And the result of it is this modern era of pro-abortion activists because if there's no creator, if there's no designer, if we're just all a product of random evolution and our lives are no more meaningful than that of animals, then what's wrong with killing babies in the womb and even out of the womb? You see how that works? The modern push towards evolution beginning in the mid-1800s and on up into the 20th century, now the 21st century, is really what birthed the abortion movement. The denial of God, the denial of our creator, of our Judeo-Christian foundation and heritage. And then finally, the coup de grace here. John 14, 6, Jesus lays it out very clearly, very simply. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice not a way, a messenger of the truth or an ambassador of the truth. He says, I am the truth. When you're looking at me, says Jesus, you're looking at the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, which tells you apart from him there can be no eternal life, no real life, no everlasting life. We can have biological function. We can even have mental function. But without him, we don't truly have life. We will die in our trespasses and sin, and we will spend eternity in outer darkness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. And by the way, in the, uh, the uh, Aramaic and the Greek and so forth, no one means no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's just so narrow-minded and dogmatic and, man, I can't believe that, that that's the only way. Well, what if there was no way? Then would you like the one way? Would you be begging for one way? Absolutely. The fact that God sent his only son into this world and allowed him to be abused and mistreated horribly, tortured, tormented, nailed to a cross, tells me that this one way is pretty amazing. And again, as the... Josh McDowell, I don't know how many have heard of Josh McDowell. He was a great campus minister back in the 60s, 70s. Uh, he wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a great book on apologetics. And he wrote the second volume, written a lot of other books, uh, had a tremendous impact uh, all through the Jesus movement years and beyond, Josh McDowell. He may not have been the originator, but he was the one who brought attention to me that there's only three options concerning Jesus Christ. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. We know he's not a liar. We know he's not a lunatic. Therefore, he has to be the Lord. Verse 24, Therefore, let that abide in you, 
which you heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son of the, and in the Father. So again, uh, John is reminding his readers that they had heard this from the beginning of their salvation, their conversion. Immediately, John and whoever else was involved in teaching them, discipling them, had taught them these things. But John sees the importance of reminding them and undergirding, make, making sure that they stay solid in their foundations of the faith. Let that abide in you, which you've heard from the beginning. Folks, there's a lot of people that are not doing that. There are a lot of people who, in the beginning, heard the truth of God's Word. And they made a commitment to Christ. But then as time has gone on, they've been seduced by this false doctrine, this false teaching, this latest and greatest popular flim-flam. And that's what John was concerned with here, that they would remain or abide in that which they had heard from the beginning. But what happens with some people, oh man, in fact, I think I've told this story before, but there was a person many years ago in our church that uh, when we made our affiliation with Calvary Chapel official, they got very upset. They ultimately left the church. And they said, all Calvary Chapel does is study the Bible, book by book, you know, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I've already been there and done that. Really? They said, I want to move on to the deeper things. Folks, without a solid foundation in the Word of God, there are no deeper things. And if John and Peter and the other New Testament writers saw the necessity of reminding their readers, their dear children in the Lord, if they saw that necessity even back then in the very beginning days of the church to go back and be constantly reminding people of that which they'd already been taught don't you think we need it to? We are so bombarded with the lies of the devil every day in this world that we live in. If we aren't combating that with a steady diet of God's word, we will be susceptible to deception, to falling away. Therefore, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. So over and over again, what we see is how John and the other apostles were concerned for the spiritual well-being of their dear children. Evangelism is so important. It is important that we reach out to the lost. It is important that we lead as many people to Christ as possible, but that's just the beginning. It's like giving birth to a baby and then just leaving them in the crib and giving them no attention, not feeding them, not changing them, not nurturing them. It's great that you gave birth, but now you've got to take care of this kid, right? You've got to raise him. You've got to train him. You've got to nurture him and help him reach maturity and adulthood. And the same thing is true spiritually. New birth is the beginning. It's not an end unto itself. It's the first step. And don't we know if we left that baby alone in the crib and didn't feed it and didn't nurture it, didn't clothe it, bathe it, it's going to die, right? And so, it's quite possible that if we bring people to Christ and they are new converts and they are not properly nurtured, fed spiritually, trained up in the Word of God, if they're not integrated into the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus gave the parable of the seed and the sower. Remember that one? 
four different kinds of soil that the seed fell on. And there was only one person that actually continued and remained. And so we do know there is an attrition rate amongst those who come to Christ, amongst those who maybe go forward at a Billy Graham. Of course, Billy's not with us anymore. Franklin Graham Crusade, Greg Laurie. Massive numbers of people go forward, but there's a high attrition rate in terms of people who actually stick with it. Part of that is because they don't get properly trained or discipled. I remember many years ago, we were doing a concert up in Fresno, California. Barry McGuire was there. I forget who else. How many have heard of Barry McGuire? Yeah, he wrote that song, Eve of Destruction. He used to be with the New Christie Minstrels. He was a big guy back in the 60s, and he got saved and started doing Christian music. It was great. But there was a cult group in California. If I remember correctly, it was the group led by a couple named Tony and Susan Alamo. And I believe their base was up near Fresno somewhere there. But they brought in these buses. And they waited to the end of the concert when we gave an altar call. And all kinds of young people went forward to get saved. And as the, these kids were leaving the auditorium, this cult group was outside ushering them onto their buses to take them to their facility to indoctrinate them into this cult. And so this is a real thing that we have to be watching out for, that people may, might... In fact, from what I've seen, the most vulnerable people to being drawn into these cult groups, whether it be the Mormon Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, what have you, are people who have already had exposure to God. I've shared the story before about a girl that I did a play with in high school. We dated briefly. They were Mormons, but her mother had originally been a Baptist, and then she was converted to Mormonism. And see, when I was approached as a, as a junior high kid by my best friend's Mormon elders, I already believed in God. I had accepted Christ as a child. But at that point in time, I wasn't going to church anymore, but I still believed God. I still loved Jesus. And so their approach was, if God has one real church on the earth, wouldn't you want to be a part of that? I said, yeah, absolutely. I love God. I want to be a part of his church. And so they began to work on me. But God had other things in mind. But that's how it works. The number one target for these groups is not the atheist or the agnostic. It's the people who already have an interest in God, a desire to know God, but they don't really know how to find Him. And so they're picked off by these cult groups. So let's hope and pray that we can get to them first. Amen? And probably somebody's offended that I'm calling them cult groups, but that's what they are. They are. Now this is really going to be abrasive. They are antichrist because they deny the truth of who Jesus is. And see, folks, th so this is really important. You can be using the name of Jesus Christ in what appears to be a positive way, and yet you really are antichrist. You see how that works? In fact, that's the most devious, most subtle, most perhaps evil way of all to put forth that spirit of Antichrist is to give the appearance that you are not Antichrist, that you're in fact pro-Christ when you're really not. In fact, one of the many false doctrines of the Mormon church, they teach that in the beginning, God was trying to decide who to send 
to be the savior of this world and the choice was between Jesus and Satan. And he chose to send Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, there's just a lot of stuff like that. Crazy stuff. Okay. A lot of information available if you're interested. It's not hard to find. All right, verse 24. I think we already started this. Yep. Therefore, let that abide in you, which we've heard from the beginning. And again, the purpose for the apostles, John and the other apostles, they were concerned for the spiritual well-being of their dear children, that they might not depart from the truth. Now, the age-old debate between Calvinism, Arminianism, but guess what? Neither one of those guys was even alive yet when the Bible was written. Calvinism, once saved, always saved. Arminianism, uh, you can lose it. The bottom line is the Bible does seem to indicate very strongly that it's possible to depart from the truth, to turn away. It's your choice. God will never take your salvation from you. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. But he won't force you to stay with him if you don't want to. And he won't force you to walk in the truth if you decide you'd rather be seduced by some false teaching. Anyone whose teaching departs from these things in any way, according to God, not me, I didn't write this, this is the word of God, according to God, anyone who departs from these things in any way is a liar and a deceiver. No matter how good they look, no matter how how good they smell, how nice they are, how dynamic they are. And unless we're willing to see this, believe this, and walk in this, the chances of us being deceived and led astray are extremely high. Many years ago, we had a situation where there was a person causing division, problems in the church, and they actually were a leader of a home fellowship group. And so we sat down and we were talking with some of the people that were part of the group, and we were explaining that we needed to, to do the biblical thing here and uh, basically disfellowship this person. And as the Bible talks about, the purpose was for restoration, to bring the person to repentance, that they might confess their sins, repent, and be restored. But what we kept getting from people was, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I just can't do that. I know what the Bible says, but I don't feel that's the right thing to do. And so... That's a problem. Whenever you have one, someone saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to do it. That's a problem. But you know what? It happens all the time. It happens all the time amongst large groups of people who identify themselves as believers. And yet when push comes to shove and it comes to you either stand with the truth of God's word or you go with your feelings and your emotions. I've heard people say things, well, I know that some of the stuff this guy says is a little flaky, but what you have to do is you have to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Uh-uh. With Jesus, there are no bones. It's all pure meat. It's all pure milk. It's the bread of life. There's nothing that you have to spit out. If you're listening to some teacher and you have to spit out some of it, then according to God's word... They're a liar. They're a deceiver. They're antichrist. Now, that's not to say that we're imperfect vessels. We can make mistakes. But when it comes to the fundamentals, the foundations of the faith, 
you know, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He is deity. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He did live a perfect, sinless life. He did die on the cross for our sins, and he did rise from the dead on the third day. And these very undeniable, indisputable doctrines, you don't monkey with those. Now, again, there's an age-old dispute in the church about the rapture. Is it before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation? Men and women of good conscience can differ on these things, you see. But when it comes to those very foundational, fundamental, not adding and not taking away. We're warned in both the book of Malachi and at the end of the book of Revelation. You don't add to or take away from the word of God. And when you start twisting things and changing things and altering these foundational, fundamental doctrines, that's Antichrist. And I don't care how charismatic somebody is, how good-looking, how tall, how blonde, or anything else. I'm not casting any aspersions on anybody in particular, so don't go there. But those are just, I mean, in our culture, right, those are the things that people really find appealing. You know, tall, dark, and handsome, or tall and blonde, or whatever. You know, well-tanned, buff, you know has nothing to do with it. If that was the case, nobody would listen to Jesus or his disciples. The Bible tells us that Jesus had nothing about his appearance that would draw people to him. All the indications are he wasn't a handsome, attractive man. Because God didn't want people to be drawn to him for that reason. In fact, you know who it is that's often depicted in the Bible as being amazingly beautiful? You know? The devil, right? He masquerades as an angel of light. We were just talking in the back when we were praying about Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent. And uh, I forget who it was, Dave. One of the guys said, well, it probably wasn't just like a snake. Well, I was telling everybody my wife's scared to death of snakes. We are talking about Indiana Jones. This is how it got started, do you believe? Back, <laughs> we're back there praying. Somebody brings up Indiana Jones. And the beetles, those big beetles, I said, well, it's not the Beatles that bothers my wife, it's the snakes. Whenever we're watching a movie and a snake comes on, she closes her eyes and turns her head, she won't look. And so then we thought, I said, God should have made my wife Eve. Because she would have never given the serpent the time of day. But, but, that serpent was just not your garden variety snake. In fact, another name for Satan in the Bible is the dragon more than likely, he was a large, beautiful beast. Very appealing. And probably just a very seductive voice. Right? But we humans are so stupid. <laughs> if it looks good, smells good, tastes good, we take it hook, line, and sinker, don't we? And here's another interesting thought, which I believe to be true. Oftentimes, when someone is deceived themselves, they don't even know that they're lying. When you are self-deceived, when you are so sold out to your false system of beliefs, when you totally buy in 
when you yourself are deceived, you don't even know when you're lying. You think you're telling the truth. In fact, all you have to do is watch the news each day to see those kind of people. I'm serious. Take it. Uh, Chris just got back from Washington, D.C. at the APAC conference. I should have had you come up and give a little report, maybe next week. Did you see some of those folks back there? <laughs> they don't know they're lying. You're sitting there watching them, and you're going, that's a lie. You're lying. You know it. I know it. They don't even know it. That is the prime example of the ultimate deception. When you can straight-faced lie to someone, and you don't even know you're lying. And by the way, the scary part is, that's the most convincing deception of all. When the person lying doesn't know they're lying, it comes off as the truth. That was what John, Peter, the other apostles were battling even in the first century. That spirit of antichrist. The devil is the father of all lies, is he not? That's what Jesus said. The devil knows they're lying. He knows he's lying through them, but oftentimes they don't even know they're lying. Now when John says, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning... He's talking about the pure, true, unadulterated gospel of Christ, the apostles' doctrine, as we read about last week in Acts chapter 2. And as James, but in James chapter 1, he speaks of that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is what John is referring to, which you have heard from the beginning. And it, Paul even writes in Galatians, he's He's scolding the Galatians, but he said, hey, you guys began in the spirit. Now you're trying to finish off in the flesh. Who has so quickly bewitched you? He tells the Galatians they'd been bewitched. They'd been deceived because they were now trying to live out their Christian walk in the flesh. Whereas they started in the spirit. That which you've heard from the beginning. And so as someone comes along and tries to take you in a different direction, you need to stick with that which you've heard from the beginning. The pure, true, unadulterated gospel of Christ, the apostles' doctrine, and that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. You ever heard of empty calories? Now that food, it looks good, it tastes good, you crave it, right? The sweets, the desserts, but it's full of what we call empty calories. There's no benefit from those. So when we talk about empty words, these words can be very appealing, very, wow, this, this guy's amazing. This lady, what an incredible teacher. But wait a minute, is it just empty calories? Or is, is there really depth there? Is there truth there? Is there meat? Empty words, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 2.4 Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Oh, he's so articulate. He's so persuasive. He's so intellectual. Hey, Paul says, I didn't come to you guys with that kind of speech. I preach Christ and him crucified. Is that too basic for you? Too simple? In the NIV, it says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding 
arguments. Again, a lot of these cult groups, man, I mean, they've been working on this stuff for years. They've got their whole spiel, their whole stick. They're trained in these things. They know exactly what people are going to say, and they have an answer for every one of your questions. If you're not equally trained, in which most people aren't, they're going to be able to out-argue you and persuade you any day of the week. So that's why we go back to the scriptures. We're so blessed to have God's word. Remember Paul commended the Bereans? They were more noble than the Thessalonians, the people from Thessalonia, because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul and the other apostles were teaching them was true. The scriptures they would have searched at that point would have been what? The Old Testament. Now we have both Testaments. But the Bereans were more noble because they didn't just take everything that Paul and Peter and the others said, John, for granted. They matched it up with the known truth of God's word that they had at that time. Most people don't do that. If it sounds good, if it's persuasive, charismatic, eloquent, I'm on board, baby. And then he says, if what you have heard from the beginning abides or remains in you. And again, that's why he keeps reminding them. Peter kept reminding so that it would abide within them. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. John says, yeah, you've received it from the beginning. Now you need to remain. It needs to remain in you, to abide in you. If you don't ever read your Bible, if you don't ever go to church, chances are it's not going to remain in you. You might have some basic, general, fuzzy feelings about God, but if you want to continue to build your life upon the rock, Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine in the book of Matthew and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Only through consistent, persistent study and meditation on the Word of God, individual and corporate like we're doing here today, as well as regular ongoing fellowship and interaction with Christian believers of like mind, can we be sure that we've heard what we've heard from the beginning remains in us. John 15, 4, Abide or remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides or remains in the vine, neither can you unless you abide or remain in me. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide or remain in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide or remain in me, and my words abide or remain in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So many people say, well, I gave up on God. He never answered my prayers. But notice this, if you abide in me and my words abide or remain in you, you will ask what you desire. Because when the word of God abides in you, your desires will be godly desires. A lot of people don't get their prayers answered because they're not praying godly prayers. James says you have not because you ask not, but then you, you use it for corrupt purposes when you do get it. And God will not answer that kind of a prayer. And if he does, it's probably to help you learn a lesson. Okay, so, and then he says, 
and my words remain in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in me, and then in John 15, he says, my words remain in you. So we must retain the word of Christ in our hearts and minds if we are to remain in him. Again, it's not based upon feelings. It's based upon relationship, commitment, obedience. And any deviation from that puts us in great jeopardy. This is about Barnabas in Acts 11.23. When he came to Antioch and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue or remain with the Lord. See, I guess there's this attitude so many people have. It's just automatic. Yeah, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I received Christ, and so I'm good to go. It's not automatic. Salvation is automatic. Being born again by the Spirit of God is you confess your sins, you repent, you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Yes, you're born again. He comes to live inside of you. But to maintain that relationship, and I guess a lot of marriages, the same thing happens, right? Well, I told you I love you 30 years ago. What's the problem? Right? I took you on a date 25 years ago. What's right? No, if you want a healthy relationship, it requires what? Maintenance, right? Well, do you don't think our relationship with God requires the same thing? Sadly, a lot of people don't seem to understand that. Remain. Barnabas encouraged the believers in Antioch. He'd seen the grace of God. He was glad. Praise the Lord. These guys have gotten saved. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, purpose of heart, determination, dedication, they should continue. Not just a one-time experience, an entire change in your lifestyle, the way you live, now living for God for the rest of your life. And then Acts 14, 21, when they, Paul and his associates, had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, returning the strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue or remain in the faith. That was one of the major concerns of the apostles as they were going all over Asia Minor, all over the known world, leading people to Christ. They didn't just, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. All right, another notch on the Bible. We, we saved 10 today, 15, 20, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his message. No, they, they wanted these people to remain, to continue in the faith. Finally, Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. They were in a bad place. And you hold fast or remain true to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so they were commended for holding fast or remaining true to his name. Folks, I want to tell you, this is so important. So important. The name of the game is remain. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your commitment to us. You didn't just give us new birth and then leave us to our own devices. You've given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. That's what your word tells us. Lord, you've given us your holy scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. 
And we thank you that you have made us partakers of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. But Lord, we see from the writings of John and Paul and Peter, other New Testament writers, the very important and powerful emphasis that these men, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put upon remaining, staying the course, not turning to the left or the right, not turning back. To do anything less, Lord, we recognize puts us in a very vulnerable and dangerous place. And Lord, we also know that's going to be the enemy's constant strategy. The enemy cannot take away our salvation, but he can certainly do everything possible to try to detour us and to get us to turn away from that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We're warned, Father, in your word, not to be deceived by persuasive words, empty words. That tells us that that is a challenge that we will face in this life as believers. And we ask you to give us strength to stand firm, to resist with every fiber of our being, to hold fast to the truth of your word, to the truth of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Thank you for making that known to us, revealing yourself to us, Father. Pray for anyone here today that might not yet have a personal relationship with you that this very day you would draw them to yourself. Lord, your word says no one can come to you unless the Spirit draws them. We pray that you draw anyone here today who has not been born again, that they might this very day make a commitment to Christ, be born again by the Spirit of God, and get on that narrow road that leads to eternal life. And Lord, for anyone else, whatever their needs might be today, whether it's for healing, guidance, direction, Lord, you have all the answers, whatever our problems might be. We pray that anyone who needs prayer would come today. Lord, for those who need to make that personal or that public statement, they've never actually made a public statement of their faith in Christ, that they might come today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.